Coming up on Stu Does America. It just wouldn't be the AOC we know and love if she didn't take time out of her clearly busy schedule to make dumb proclamations about stuff she doesn't understand. At least we get to mock her for it, and that's always fun. Andrew Cuomo has some advice for protesters who want the economy opened up again. Just get an essential job, you losers. It's so easy. I hear it's pretty easy to be a governor or a CNN anchor. Are they essential? Really? And just because Bernie's out of the race, it doesn't mean that the fight against socialism is over. There's a plethora of Bernie lights out there desperately in need of a good smackdown. Justin Haskins from the Heartland Institute brings us up to speed. Look, all you freeloaders out there, I understand. Your YouTube, your Facebook, your Pluto TV, your listening on podcasts. I mean, how about you toss us a nice five-star rating or review? Because you're sincere about it, obviously not because I'm keeping a list of people who don't do it to eventually get my revenge on. Not at all. Or consider a subscription to Blaze TV. You'll get my show with uh, this nonsense that I do every day and a bunch of others. Just get to blazetv.com slash stew and sign up using the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And I'll take 30 bucks off the price just like that. After 50 episodes, you might think we'd be easing up a little bit, cutting some corners, maybe not risking certain death to film here in the studio, but you'd be mistaken. As the great philosopher Heisenberg once said, we are not ramping down, we are just getting started. Nothing stops this train. Well, except for the weekend, obviously. Stu does America. Good news, everybody. The economy is fixed. Everything is fine. Go back to what you were doing before you were so rudely interrupted, as long as it's inside your home. How long have we been living in Coronaville? It seems like forever. But a month ago today, we had only about 300 total deaths from COVID-19. Today, we're a shade under 50,000. A month ago, we went from having 282,000 claims for unemployment to 3.3 million the next week, then another 6.9 million the week after that, then 6.6 million more, then 5 million the week after that. This morning, when the new number came out, everyone in the room sighed in relief when they saw 4.4 million pop up on the TV screen. We're at the point where the fourth worst thing that can happen to you in history feels good. It's like we're a nation of Bengals fans. America has always been the country of hardworking types that put our world on our shoulders and push through a crisis. And that's one of the reasons why it's been so tough for us to deal with this. It's not that Americans mind dealing with sacrifice in tough times. We've done that before a bunch of times. But when World War II was happening, we were a nation of Rosie the Riveters, right? We're seeing some of that from our doctors and our nurses and grocery store and utility workers and the hardest working person of all, the guy who brings the Amazon boxes that my wife orders to the front door. God bless you. But for a lot of the rest of America, you know, we're way out of our element, I feel like, with this thing. We get hit with a terror attack, we go kick their asses, right? We get hit with a hurricane, we donate our money and our time and our energy to bring the community back to life. We lose a job. We put our noses to the grindstone and we find something else. But with this thing, we stay inside, I guess. We cower in our family room and watch Tiger King. We can't even help out our elderly relatives. This is a different kind of enemy. And, you know, I'm not saying it would have made more sense for us to put up our fists and try to punch the coronavirus into oblivion. Staying the hell away from each other is how you fight a war like this. But just like the 
the American instinct that we know, it just goes against that, right? I mean, it's just against the American instinct. And that's just one of the 10 zillion reasons this all sucks. I think that's also one of the reasons we're starting to get protests around the country. And so many in the sphere of conservative media are just fed up. They just want they just want to get out there and do something. Let's get back to work. It's what we do. The country as a whole isn't really there yet, though. A new poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows majorities across partisan uh, across partisan lines say these shelter in place measures are worth it to protect people. Uh, shelter in place. Uh, it's like 80 percent total are worth it. Uh, against 19% say they uh, is not worth it. Democrats, of course, you'd expect 94% are, say it's worth it. 5% not worth it. Uh, independents, though, 84% say it's worth it. Only 16 against. And Republicans, 61% say these restrictions are worth it. Only 38% say no thanks. And while most of the country is understandably scared of the virus, a certain class of powerful individual is looking to shape the way we think about the world. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one of those people. And I know, it's a little unfair. Why would AOC be concerned with thinking? It's not a bad question, but you can never let a crisis go to waste. So here's AOC outlining why she's not all that impressed with the American spirit. The, I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society, you know, only in America... Does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we, you know, have this discussion about going going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should just say, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 70 hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security in our lives. It is quite a different vibe on what America is made of. I will give her that. And I guess you can understand it from AOC. To her, true liberation is not only a really difficult four-syllable word, it's also freedom from work, not freedom to work. It's getting a six-figure job to show up to Congress very occasionally and get your ass kissed by MSNBC. Liberation to AOC is making yourself the victim, slurping down a a rosé, and mesmerizing yourself once again by looking at the garbage disposal for a few hours. It's hard for her to understand why you'd want to go back to work when it isn't essential. This comes, of course, from America's least essential employee. Sure, you want to go back to your small business. You know, I understand. You want to serve your community. You want to help your neighbors and guarantee a promising future for your kids. AOC? Well, she just wants to go talk to Fat Joe on his Instagram about senile Joe. Watch. There's three things you can do. Mm-hmm. You can vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. You can vote for Biden. Mm-hmm. Or you cannot vote at all. Mm-hmm. Who are you going to vote for? In November, I'm going to be voting for Joe Biden. That's what <laughs> That's what I'm going to be doing. That's what I'm going to oh, be doing. I love that, AOC. I love that. I love, I love, I love that. That, you know, you, so th- th- is this the first time you said you voting for Biden or? I mean, I've been saying this whole time that we got to support the Democratic nominee, but, um, but, you know. Is this like, the first time you said Joe Biden, that you're voting for Joe Biden? That's the question, publicly. It, if this it isn't the first time, this might be, it could be the second, I don't know. 
as far as th this is the time where I'm saying it declaratively like this, I think. I love how the uh, the Alexandria from the block comes out when she's on with Fat Joe. And can, hey, hey, Fat. This is who Joe Biden was talking to at that one meeting. Hey, come on, Fat. Just might, might I beg with you, Fat. Can you not do the entire segment with your face half off the camera? You know how annoying that is? It's like... <laughs> That's right. That's right, AOC. <laughs> Just get, get where the stupid camera is. It's your phone. You're controlling it. You can't get in the middle. It's driving me nuts. If you think the virus is scary, imagine a future of AOC, Joe Biden, and Fat Joe. Especially when we can all agree that if you were going to pick one Joe to lead our nation, it's going to be Joe Exotic. You know that's true. This is why we like to escape into a tiger kingdom. I mean, Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee for president. And look at Google right here. You type in Joe and you don't get Joe Biden. You get Joe Exotic. We just want to escape from all of this. All I want to do when I'm done with this little stupid show that I do is watch a bunch of executives read random names in Zoom meetings for a league that probably won't wind up playing anyway, a.k.a. the NFL draft. We're dealing with a Congress where the majority of them now are millionaires, the majority. And they're telling the American people they can't go to work even if they accept the risks involved. We need to be sensible. Yes, of course. It's probably not time to pack ourselves into a crowded bar and start sharing each other's pre-chewed bubble yum. I got it. We all get that. But this isn't going to hold for long. People have worked too hard for too long to let the American experiment fade away without a fight. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to finish filling out my final NFL mock draft and catch the final episode of Tiger King. You've heard me talk about it many times, how important it is to have a VPN. If you're doing a mock draft with the NFL draft, you've got to make sure that's, prepared, that's uh, protected. And now uh, a lot of people are working from home. Everybody's doing everything from home these days. You better have a VPN. And it's important you choose a VPN that you actually trust. ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Why? Well, ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. That's huge. I mean, if you're... <laughs> You don't want to get on a VPN and having the VPN company take your data when you're trying to, to have some sort of security. Lots of really cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. Uh, you want to have something that's fast. You don't want to have VPN getting in the way of your browsing. That can happen to you. It can slow your connection down. It can make your device sluggish. V ExpressVPN is not going to do that. Uh, I've been using it for a while. My internet speeds are always blazing fast. Even when you connect to servers that are thousands of miles away, you can still stream HD quality videos with no lag time. Uh, it's really easy to use. You don't have to be some internet genius. You don't have to call your IT person who's probably uh, not even have pants on in his apartment somewhere. Uh, you don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is fire up the app, click one button to connect. Uh, everybody says this. All the tech people understand that ExpressVPN is the best. Wired, CNET, The Verge, many of the others. They call it the number one VPN in the world. Protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. ExpressVPN.com slash stew. ExpressVPN.com slash stew. Get an extra three months free on a one-year package. If you go to ExpressVPN.com slash stew, make sure you use the slash stew part because that's how they know. You like this stupid show, plus you get the deal. ExpressVPN.com slash stew to learn more.
this is a really tough time and everybody's trying to deal with it in their own way and it's not easy okay we all understand that this is we're going through as a country something we none of us could have possibly imagined we were going to go through just a couple of months ago so you kind of give people a little bit of leeway maybe as the way they're handling in the way they're handling things um however when you see something i think is is as awful as this, you have to call it out. Dan McLaughlin from National Review joins me. Uh, he wrote a great story for National Review. Stop dancing in the graves of Trump supporters who die of the virus. And it's a heck of an accusation, Dan. But you're talking about a New York Times story about a New York bar owner and Trump supporter, Joe Joyce. Tell us the story. Yeah, so Joe Joyce is a bar owner in uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, who died uh, of the virus at the end of March. Um, and the Times interviewed his family and wrote this piece that starts off looking like an obituary, but it basically turns into uh, an attack on, on Trump and on Sean Hannity uh, of Fox News, blaming them for Joyce's death. The problem is that the article has some of its facts wrong or backwards, uh, and others are just pure speculation. Uh, and so this is not only in bad taste, but it's just it's it's misleading to the readers and it's factually off base. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, even in the setup, they're trying to make um, Joyce a sympathetic figure. It's basically a, an obituary and they're trying to make him a sympathetic figure at the beginning of it. And I, they, they seem to think his the audience of the Times has a certain opinion of, of Trump supporters. I, I couldn't believe this quote. They, they say, he, uh, Joyce was basically a good guy. He was not going to make the Syrian immigrant who came in to play darts feel as if he belonged anywhere else. Uh, you know, in his bar, Joe Joyce had set the tone for what evolved into an incongru incongruously uh, uh, progressive place. From the beginning, there had been a quiet gay presence. It's like, well, he'll allow Syrians and gays in there, so you don't have to hate him, <laughs> Times audience. This guy is okay, but he was misled by Trump and Sean Hannity, wasn't he? Yeah, and that's that's the way it's framed. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate that that he's not around to give his side of the story. So they really talk to uh, his kids who didn't share his political opinions and, and who perhaps maybe didn't really realize when they talked to The Times the way this thing was going to get framed. Um, but I mean, the story, the whole story is keyed around Joyce leaving on a cruise on the 1st of March. Uh, and the idea is that, well, he listened to, to Trump and Hannity downplaying the virus. And he decided to go on this cruise that went to Spain uh, and that this was effectively the end of him. Uh, this is what killed him. Uh, and you had a bunch of left wing pundits basically on Twitter saying, oh, you know, Fox News murdered this man. Uh, well, if you actually look at the facts, uh, number one, the Hannity quote that they use in the article is from the 9th of March. So it's eight days after the cruise started. Uh, you know, I don't think Sean Hannity has a time machine. Um, <laughs> and secondly, you know, the. The article doesn't say anything about anybody, uh, including Joyce, contracting the virus on the cruise. What it does tell us is that Joyce came back. Uh, he went back to work at his bar in Brooklyn. And two weeks after that, uh, he's suffering severe symptoms, goes in the hospital and dies. And one of the other guys who worked at his bar also gets the virus. Uh, so we have, you know, another case at the bar. We don't have another case on the cruise that we know of. Um, and so... You know, even even as tasteless as this attack is, it's also just factually, you know, a lot of speculation that that doesn't really belong in this article. Yeah. And they do a, a, a pretty, pretty amazing magic trick uh, throughout the article by just leaving context out as well. As you point out, the Hannity thing is eight days later. They don't tell you that in the article. You have to go figure that out for yourself. And then they also leave out comment after comment after comment from 
leaders from his city, from his state, Cuomo, de Blasio, uh, Democratic leaders, all saying the same types of things right around that time. And to leave that sort of context out, you're just you're just writing a fiction tale at this point. Yeah. And it's it's bizarre that, you know, it's a reminder, I guess, when we when we read history. Right. I mean, here, this is stuff that happened six weeks ago. uh, And yet we have to remind people that the context was so very different, that you had the mayor and the governor uh, at that point telling still telling people to relax, uh, that you couldn't get it from human to human contact and transmission. You know, the the uh, Super Tuesday primaries were two days away. Nobody was talking about canceling those. So the idea that uh, that it was just Trump and Hannity uh, that convinced this man go, to go on a cruise when everybody else was uh, was aware that this was too dangerous to go out. Uh, it's just not the way the world was on the first of March. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very easy, I think, for all of us now to look back, and you know, I've, I've made the case a couple times that look. You can make this case basically against almost anyone if you go back to February and January and maybe even the very beginning of March, where people were a little dismissive over this. We've seen these threats come a lot of times. And, you know, maybe, you know, everybody from the president on down, I think, had those moments where they probably said things that didn't properly assess this threat Uh, to use it in this way against this guy. When not only did uh, did uh, many people on the left tweet about this being maybe uh, too hyped as a threat. The author of the New York Times story herself actually was tweeting these types of things at this time. Yeah, I mean, on the 27th of February, this is this is just three days before the article, you know, before the crew, the man left on the cruise that she's writing about. Uh, she was talking about, well, you know, why, why is why is the stock market panicking? You know, we don't we don't see reasons why this is going to be quite that bad. Mm. So. Um, yeah, some people some people had greater or lesser threat assessments than others, but I think almost everybody was even all the way into the end of February, beginning of March, uh, was underestimating how how rapidly and how badly things were going to get, uh, and not just here but around the world. Yeah, no, it's it's very true. Um, watching this kind of happen, and I don't know if you, I think you're this, you probably the same way I am with this in that. You know, the the conservative media scope is very wide and a lot of different opinions and a lot of different approaches. Um, And I I struggle at times to convince people who are listening or who other people in conservative media that you can't just dismiss every piece of mainstream journalism. Some of it's really good. Sometimes there's really good reporting that happens. But when when things like this go on, it, it makes that case almost impossible because this is such a it's so blatantly designed to vilify uh, the president in a moment where you're trying to remember, uh, uh, you know, a person who, by all accounts, seems like a really good guy. When they prioritize that, um, it's really difficult to make the case to conservatives, hey, maybe you should listen to the next time the New York Times has a good report. Yeah, it's self-defeating in that regard. I mean, look, the Times does a lot of great journalism and probably like, you know, a third of this article is great journalism, but it, then it just runs off the rails because there was just this need to take a pot shot uh, at, at, you know, at Trump and at Hannity and, and at this man who died for listening to them. Mm. Um, before we before that you go here, Dan, give me a more of a general sense of how you're feeling about how things are going. There's a kind of a debate on the conservative side of how you open things up. How do we go back to anything that resembles normalcy? Uh, there's still a huge threat from this virus, though. How do you how do you walk this line? 
I mean, I think I'm with, you know, a lot of America. I think most people are accepting that that the lockdowns and whatnot have been necessary uh, and that they're still necessary right now. Uh, but also that the country badly needs to get back to work, you know, back to school, back to church, back to a lot of things, uh, back to even being able to, like, go to the dentist. Um, you know, we can't live like this forever. Uh, and I think that if we have a certain level of impatience uh, that pushes us, that's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, I think I think there has to be a push and pull between, on the one hand, taking the advice of doctors who say, well, let's keep everything locked down forever and, you know, wanting to get things up and running again. People need to work again. And we're only a week or two away from my hair being too shaggy to be allowed on television. We should point that out. It's a it's a it's a crucial line we don't want to cross. <laughs> I'm not far away. So. <laughs> Dan McLaughlin uh, from National Review. The story is titled uh, Stop Dancing on the Graves of Trump Supporters Who Die of the Virus. It's great stuff. And Dan's a great follow on Twitter as well. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks. All right. Back in a second. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. They're incredible people. I love those people. They are they're great. They've been strong, resolute. But at the same time, he must do what he thinks is right. I want him to do what he thinks is right. Uh, but I disagree with him on what he's doing. But I want to let the governors do. Now, if I see something totally egregious, totally out of line, I'll do. But I think spas and beauty salons and tattoo parlors and barber shops in uh, phase one, we're going to have phase two very soon, is just too soon. I think it's too soon. This is a fascinating thing to watch. Uh, you know, uh, Trump comes out and criticizes Brian Kemp for uh, opening up, uh, you know, he mentioned it, uh, tattoo parlors, beauty salons, massage parlors. Uh, it's an interesting dance we're seeing here because Trump outlined a pretty clear plan as to what he thought was appropriate. Um, reportedly, Dr. Burks talked to him about this particular thing in um, Georgia with Brian Kemp, and he comes out and he's critical of him. Now, you know, you don't know what the real behind the, the scenes thing is here. I think it's very possible that Trump uh, wants to kind of get the word out, send a little warning out to other red state governors. Hey, not this stuff this fast. But I, I, I you know, I, again, like, you know, I, I, I'll be critical of Trump. I feel like you guys are adults and you can handle it. If, if I think Trump has done something wrong, you know, I'm, I'm going to say it. I know I feel like there's a lot of people who. Um, can't handle that. And, you know, I feel like this audience, I mean, you're already here. You're already dealing, either, either looking at me or I mean, you're already dealing with this fat face. I mean, you know, we could probably handle anything at this point. I mean, I ate nine pints of ice cream on the air the other day. You can handle anything. Uh, so I feel like uh, that's okay to do. In this situation, though, I mean, look, I think he's, he's, oh, he's showing some restraint here, right? He's saying, let the governors do what the governors are going to do. I think he's sending a little signal to other red states and say, like, hey, take this slow. Don't go too fast because there is real damage to be done. If you come out and you open up real fast and you get an outbreak, it's going to be really hard to justify opening up more. So they want this to go well. Uh, there is an instinct, I think, among red state governors to say we are the bravest. We are the first. We are the ones walking out there and we're doing what we have to do. Um, I, I 
you know, I honestly don't think necessarily. I mean, I think salons are going to open up in a lot of places when you're talking about places you can get your hair cut and, and things of that nature. You know, massage parlors and tattoos, maybe it's a little bit a uh, little bit different in this first sort of phase. What you want to do here and the line Trump is trying to walk, he's trying to walk it with his experts. He's trying to walk it with all these governors is to say, let's inch out. Let's peek our nose out the door. Let's make sure nothing dumb and bad happens, because if something bad happens, we're going to have to do this all over again. And nobody wants that to happen. Nobody wants to get back to the place we are. I think people could take another few weeks of this if they had to. If they knew at the end of the day uh, and the end of that period, they'd be able to walk out and have a normal life again. If and this is one of the reasons why it's questionable whether protesting right now is the right call. Uh, I I'm of the belief that probably nothing's going to happen. I'm of the belief that, uh, you know, outside transmission of this looks pretty unlikely, frankly, especially unless you're not singing or screaming in somebody's face. But you just want to be careful here. We've already gone through this period with the economy. The damage is done. It, the longer it waits, the worse it will get. But, it will get, but let's just make sure we don't uh, go too far too fast and blow this thing up and have to do it all over again because I can't handle it. I can't handle it. I've got, I can barely get out of my house. There's so many Amazon packages piled up in front of it. My kids are going crazy. Uh, my wife is going crazy. I can't handle it personally. And that's always the most important thing on this show. Just letting you know. Andrew Cuomo, of course, is out there. And he... Is he made a statement yesterday? Can you imagine a Republican being this dismissive of people out of work? Watch. Is there a fundamental right to work if the government can't get me the money when I need it? Basic question. Is there yeah, a you fundamental want to go, by the way, right? You want to go to, go to work? work? Go take the job as an essential worker. Do it tomorrow. Right? You're working. I am. You're an essential worker. So go take a job as an essential but, worker. But, but the people aren't hiring because of the No, pandemic. there are people hiring. You can get a job as an essential worker. So now you can go to work and you can be an essential worker and you're not going to kill anyone. Not sure of how uh, the science around that one works. I think if you're an essential worker, you can kill someone just as easily as if you labeled a non-essential worker. Point being here, of course, like, you know, look, of course, there are some jobs that are open. Not every we can't get 26 million people going to work as essential workers. How about this? We'll make them all essential workers and then there will be no shutdown at all. Is that going to help the virus? Doesn't make any sense at all. We, you know, in theory, you would want actually the minimum amount of people working as possible. Uh, Only people who are actually essential. Again, I point out this stupid show is labeled essential. I got news for you. It's not. Okay? I mean, I barely even want to watch it every night. No, I'm not kidding. Well, I'll listen to it. I don't want to watch it. Because then, again, I don't want to watch myself eat ice cream. This is it's not a good look. Uh, but, you know, like, come on. There's a lot of jobs out there uh, that are not essential. We're trying to limit the transmission of, this, uh, of, of the virus. And not to mention, he's just being completely dismissive to real complaints here. The media is trying to do this thing that they did to the Tea Party, which was to act as if these uh, these protests aren't real, that this sentiment isn't real. It's astroturfed. It's just the right wing millionaires trying to get people out there and get them killed. Uh, that's not what's happening. You know, you got 26 million people out of work. These people want to go out there and fight. I talked about it earlier today. They want to go out there and fight, fight for their country, fight for their jobs. Um, and they're not able to do that. It's really frustrating for a lot of people. We've heard from a lot of them. And, you know, it's true. Of course, there are people who want to go back to work. They want to be able to support their family and, you know, keep the backbone of their country alive. 
So Cuomo, yet again, as we've proved in this uh, show many, many times, sucks. All the Cuomos suck. We'll be back in a second. But I tell you about uh, something called the CLT exam. The CLT exam is the classic learning test exam. It's like the SAT or the ACT, except it's a million times better, of course. Uh, it is a much better measure of how your, uh, if, it's your, if it's you or your son or your grandson, whoever it is, um, whoever it is that needs to take the test to get into college, look, they are, uh, it's a much more effective test. Now, you might say, well, they can't take the test because of coronavirus. No one's taking any tests. The SAT's canceled. The ACT's canceled. Well, uh, the CLT decided, you know what? We're going to triple the testing dates available for this spring. We've been talking about this all day today. You know, Americans just want to go out and do something. They don't want to be sitting. They don't want to be victims, right? This is what the CLT is doing right now. We're going out and we're doing it. We're doing the tests. They, uh, they are able to make uh, students do it remotely from home. Uh, and, you know, look, a lot of people don't know about the CLT yet, uh, but hundreds of thousands of students, tons of teachers uh, and, uh, and colleges are doing this right now. Classic learning test has been used all over the place. They have a test coming up on April 25th, uh, April 29th for their uh, PSAT versions, the CLT 10. Go there now, cltexam.com. It's cltexam.com. Our next guest is an editorial director and research fellow at the Heartland Institute. He's also on the front lines of the war against socialism. And I mean that. He's actually literally a contributing author to this thing right here. Arguing with Socialists by Glenn Beck. Available now. Please go buy it. Because we're not socialists here. We're capitalists. Uh, Justin Haskins joins us now. Justin, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. I want to run you by my little thesis from the beginning of the show today, which um, is one of the reasons this COVID situation is so difficult on us as Americans is that our instinct in these situations when things get really tough is to fight. Like, you know, World War II, we're out there fighting. You know, 9-11, we want to go fight. You know, we lose a job. We want to put our nose to the grindstone and go for it. Here, it's the total opposite. They're saying, don't fight. Whatever you do, don't leave. You can't go do anything. Don't go work. You got to stay inside. It's just a really, it's against all of our instincts, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. In a lot of ways, it's a very anti-American situation, right? It's a, America is this country where they, people don't just want to go fight. They want to innovate. They want to be entrepreneurs. They want to get out there and solve whatever that problem is. And as you said, no, <laughs> the government is saying, not only uh, do we advise that you don't do this, but you actually can't do this. <laughs> and you it, it, and we're not even saying you can't go innovate and be entrepreneurs and figure out a way to survive. We're saying, don't even go to, you know, store don't even go buy a pair of socks in some cases. Stay home at all costs. Don't go to restaurants. Don't go anywhere. And I think it is really tough for people to deal with this. We're all just sitting at home watching Netflix hours after hour after hour when really we want to get out there and, and solve problems to get the economy going again. Mm. You know, in the book, uh, uh, Arguing with Socialists, you, you, you talk a lot about um, AOC and, and all the you have a lot of great stuff about AOC in there. And her new kind of take on this world is, look, we're not walk, working now. What if we just all don't go back to work after this, too? <laughs> like this is a, a, a solution that not only is obviously it's completely implausible, but also it's one that she believes Americans want. She believes that Americans are the type of people who actually, if given the choice, would not be productive at all. They'd rather just sit at home. I mean, that's not the America that I know. 
No, no. But but you're right. I think you've nailed it on the head. I mean, I think that in AOC's universe, which actually is very similar to the Karl Marx universe, if you go back to Karl Marx, he's making a lot of these same arguments back in the 1800s, essentially saying, hey, look, uh, we have so much wealth floating around there that we don't need to work. We could just take the wealth from the people who have produced it, keep it for ourselves, and then everyone will have more than enough than what they would need. And yeah, that doesn't fit in with America at all. It has never been part of our history, but that is absolutely how AOC sees the world. And it's totally false, by the way. There isn't anywhere near enough wealth in the world to do that, but that is definitely the, the picture that she's painting and a whole bunch of other people in the Democratic Party, too. It's not just her. It's and it's you know it's, it's it's an interesting. There's like a slight split between her and an Andrew Cuomo, uh, and you could see that sort of more standard progressivism from Cuomo, where he is just berating people. You you, you say you want to go work, well, get an essential job, as if you can't pass the virus when you have an essential job. Or I don't even know what he's talking about. I know that if a Republican <laughs> would have had that exact same response, it would be in every commercial. It would be all over the news every day. It's Andrew Cuomo though, and he seems to get a break uh, uh, for everything these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is pretty standard uh, media giving giving the Democrat the pass, right? Yeah. Can you imagine if if you had a Republican who dared to say that some jobs were not worthy or weren't essential to our society? Oh my God, there'd be protests in the streets. It would be madness. So yeah, no question about it. He's getting a huge pass. Um, let's talk about uh, the sort of um, uh, post. COVID world here for a second, because I think this is really interesting. You know, I know when we're putting this book together, the thought is we're in the middle of an election year. Everyone's going to be talking about election. Could be Bernie Sanders as the nominee. Either way, it's going to be someone who's much further down the Marxist road than anyone I would ever vote for. Um, And that's not really what's happened. I mean, the election is theoretically going on, but who's even thinking about it at this point? What I keep thinking (laughs) about, and I was talking to Glenn about this as well, is in, in a way, almost inadvertently, this book is written and, and really important because as uh, the COVID thing goes away, there are going to be a lot of people and they're showing their hands already that are going to try to grab power and make what, what you're warning about in this book happen a lot more quickly because these things can usually only happen when you have a revolution. And while this isn't a revolution, it's pretty close to it. It's that just it's that much of a disturbance. So kind of talk to me a little bit about how the book itself kind of gives you the ammunition you need to fight off the 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 brave, the brave new world we're about to face. <laughs> yeah, I think the idea behind this was and, and you understand this better than anyone. The idea behind this was to sort of look into the future as well as the past to predict what was going to happen and how we were moving in this direction. I don't think that anybody who was involved with this book anticipated that we would suddenly be 10 years into the future, 20 years into the future, dealing with things that I I mean, I'm worried about happening, but I had no idea it was going to happen this quickly. Um, the book is more is is more important than ever, I think, because of how dire things are getting. Uh, as you pointed out, um, the left loves to use crises. I mean, we all know this. Never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Um, but socialists love it even more than just your standard progressive. They thrive in chaos, and they've always thrived in chaos because when people are at their most desperate point, that's when they're they're likely to throw the entire system out the window and go with something that they've never tried before. And that's 
that's why I think we're at this really dangerous moment in history. So what's great about this book is that it doesn't just deal with factual arguments about things that have happened in the past. It doesn't just talk about things that could happen in the future. It really talks about things that are happening right now and and, and explains why no matter how you structure a government program, no matter how you build a system, um, if you have, if it's socialist in, in it at its core, it's going to fail. It's not going to work because fundamentally socialism is completely at odds with human nature. And that's why it's never worked in the past, why it will never work in the future. And uh, why you'll see uh, throughout this book, um, no matter how you try to build it, 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 it's just, it's going to fail every single time. So the, the ammunition that you need to win those arguments, it's throughout this book. Um, and I think in a way, really in a spectacular way that none of us saw coming. Yeah. And it is a really, I mean, it's a fun book to read too. There's, you could jump in kind of yeah. wherever you want. It's funny. You know, it, it's, it's a, it's a really entertaining read. Um, one of the things I think is, is interesting, and it's, it's an argument you don't see taken on as much as it should, is the argument about, um, about Sweden and the Nordic countries. We hear from Bernie Sanders, well, of course, I'm not talking about North Korea. I'm not talking about Cuba. I'm talking about uh, Sweden. I'm talking about uh, Denmark. I'm talking about Finland. And I think there was probably a mistake by conservatives over the past 10 or 15 years in which we would say, like, we don't want to be Europe. We don't want to be socialist Europe. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be Sweden. And it's really not fair to Sweden, uh, oddly. Um, but, it's, <laughs> it, but it also, I think, hurts our argument because people look at Sweden and Denmark and Finland and say, like, well, maybe it's not ideal, but it's not terrible. Uh, socialism is quite different than what Sweden actually presents. Yeah, this is actually maybe the most important argument for people who are younger. See, if you, if you go and you talk to younger people about socialism, the number one thing that they'll say is, well, yeah, you know, I don't I don't like authoritarian socialism. I like the kind of socialism they have in Sweden and Norway and Denmark. Like, that's what I want. That's that's socialism to me. And it's proof that it works. You see that socialists have, are at a huge disadvantage because they've never had a successful society uh, with their model ever in the history of human civilization. So this is their one chance to show people, actually, we have a successful uh, a group of countries that have tried this. And you could just look at them, look at how happy they are. These are little utopian countries, socialist societies, right? But the thing is, the more you dig into it, the more obvious it is that these countries aren't even remotely close to what Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez want. I mean, they do have some socialized industries, but having some socialized parts of your economy does not make you a socialist. Otherwise, every country on earth would be a socialist society. Uh, everyone has public roads. Everyone has a military. That doesn't mean that you're a socialist country. So when you actually start looking at regulations, the tax structure, uh, when you start looking at um, uh, uh, things like occupational licensing in some cases, when you look at school choice in places like Sweden, when you look at how they're pumping uh, natural resources out of the ground to make money in Norway, mm. uh, you realize this is not the platform of the Democratic Party. They have balanced budgets or near balanced budgets in a lot of these countries. I mean, that's hardly socialist, right? Uh, so these are not socialist societies in any, and it, you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, just go look at the World Economic Freedom Rankings that the Cato Institute and Heritage Foundation and other big think tanks have put out, and you'll see that among 200 countries or something like that, they're ranking in the top 25 or so. Every single one of these Scandinavian countries are in the top 30 at least. And many of them historically have ranked higher than the United States in many of these ranking reports. So these are hardly socialist societies. Yeah. And I kind of get defeatist at times. And I think, you know, when 
when we move left, we almost never seem to come back the other way. It really did happen in Sweden. I mean, they were you could have called them a socialist country you know, a while ago. Now it's just not fair. And, and, and Justin's right. This is a really important article, uh, part of the book. If you happen to have kids in college or uh, younger people who are, are being tempted by socialism, that is a big argument they bring up. I want to give you one more here before we uh, before we leave, which is uh, we did. There's a chapter in the book about modern monetary theory. And it's kind of like this nerdy thing. You see it occasionally pop up on academic blogs. And I don't know, like it's not a sexy topic. I think when when it was being written, however, and it's basically this idea that you can just print and print and print and print and print money and you don't have to worry about that. Stop worrying about debt. It's not a real thing. You can just keep printing money until you're for as long as you want. Um, And, you know, it kind of seems like this academic crazy thing that's coming out. It's hard to deny. I feel like at this moment, partially because we have to because of coronavirus, partially because we've all there's not even a party anymore that fights back against spending. We're basically just giving this thing a whirl. We're just stepping in. We're like, let's just try modern monetary theory and let's not have a discussion about it. Let's see how it works. Uh, We're there basically at this point. Why is it the wrong idea? Yeah, well, modern monetary theory is one of those things that when we put it in the book, I thought this was something maybe that would happen 10, 20 years into the future, not like a couple of months in the future. (laughs) Um, But that's but absolutely. I mean, modern monetary theory is 21st century socialism. And when you start looking at the connections that people like Bernie Sanders has to the top modern monetary theorists, uh, you'll see that why this is such an important part of their platform. The idea, as you said, is just to print as much money as you want, but it's not just print lots of money. It's print lots of money and control the economy. That's how they control inflation. They control inflation by controlling the economy. And so in order to do that quickly enough, you have to have really tight centralized control of both the banking system, but also of regulations across the entire economy. Otherwise, there's no way to make it work. Um, So this is 21st century socialism because you don't need to actually confiscate property in order for this to work. You don't actually need to nationalize industries per se in order to make it work. All you have to do is print so much money that you control where the money goes. And if you control the money in the society, then you control the property in the society without actually having to own anything. It's actually a really genius end runaround of of the normal way that you have socialism. And you don't have to throw anybody in gulags to do it. You just say, well, we're going to print money and give it to these people over here and not to those people over there. Boom. You have socialism without actually having to confiscate property. So it's a really, really dangerous idea, um, even if it could work. And of course, it can't work. It leads to inflation and all sorts of economic distortions. And um, if you look at countries like Japan, which have tried something kind of like this, you'll see they've had absolutely no GDP growth in like 25 years. This is a really bad system economically. But even if it could work, it's a way to take away everybody's economic freedom in society. I mean, it is social. So um, just for that reason alone, I would say it's a totally disastrous idea. And you're right. We are living through a version of it right now. And what the left wants to do is double down on it, make it worse and put systems in place that allow this to keep going for years and years into the future. Mm. And that's really where the danger is. Mm. Justin Haskins, uh, the book is, of course, Arguing with Socialists by someone you might know, Glenn Beck. Uh, He's also from the Heartland Institute and he's a contributing author on the book as well. Justin, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Stu. All right, back in a second. Thanks so much for listening and watching uh, this show. Follow me on social media, at Stu Does America. Pretty much any site, you can just go to that and find me. We will uh, see you tomorrow.
Go Birds.